shadow was a Lamanite who chopped off Laban's head. Stole his sword and nicked his clothes and left him there for dead. All because of inner voices talking in his head. Kill this man or your posterity will be pigmented. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today is the second reading of Shadow of the Lamanite. Uh, if you want to attend live readings, they happen on Wednesday nights at the Community of Christ Chapel in Mesa, Arizona, between 6.30 p.m. and, I don't know, 8, usually. So if you want to come and join in on the conversation, please, we'd love to have you. And uh, with no further ado, this is Shadow of the Lamanite, part two. All right. Thanks. Thanks uh, for coming out tonight. Smaller numbers and driving them away. I don't even have Matt here. He's going to hear it from me. So, um, Shadow the Lamanite, Part Two. So, um, Craig and Lauren and Hillary, you are both here. Larry, this is your first, and, and you didn't listen to the Part One. You listened to what we did at, at the the Sunstone thing. Um, so, so Hillary, maybe I'm going to pick on you to, to catch Larry up on where we are. What, what, what do we do? What is, what is this all about? Shadow. Shadow? What, what? Shadow's the Lamanite. <laughs> Shadow the Lamanite. Um, Glenn has done his first session, and he actually started it by asking those in the audience that were here live what their... Um, what do they think of when they hear Book of Mormon? I think yeah, yeah. It was just asking for a reaction. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of get a conversation started, kind of like now. And people shared, and then uh, Glenn did some introductory remarks, and then he started the reading. Uh, and I think it started off with Goodly Parents, right? That is the, yeah, that's the first chapter. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it did, did some other things, like the introduction, the title page, and oh, some other right. things ex- explaining kind of, you know, this, this is a book of... That, that I'm I'm uh, reinterpreting the Book of Mormon, the messages in the Book of Mormon, and kind of what they mean to me in a more modern setting as a very uh, intentional fiction and satire, um, but but one that I hope is a, a gentle satire and that is exploring some uh, interesting, hopefully profound issues that they are to me, and uh, that will stimulate some discussion. That's what I really, I, I like the conversation that comes. And, and um, I'll, I'll ask uh, Lauren, what, what did you uh, get out of that first one? And, and um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just ask that. First thing I ask, are we recording? Yeah, <laughs> yes, 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 totally recording. Uh, well, I got out of it, um, I'm trying to find the words for it. Um, I didn't get what I needed out of the Book of Mormon mm. when I was younger. In your interpretation, I got something out of it. Mm. Um, what I feel like I should have gotten out of the Book of Mormon, but it didn't have the capacity to give me what I needed. Yeah. Um, and definitely you're in a different place now than you were as a kid. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's presented in a different way. And Yeah. I think that um, my intuition was very strong as a child, and mm. I was taught to ignore it. Mm. And... Taught to ignore your intuition. My intuition. Yeah. Um, I think that the focus was more on here are all of the rules that make us separate from sure. everyone else. Yeah. And I think that I came into this world kind of with this built-in knowledge of, of we all have this intuition and we're all given this, but I shut it off. Mm-hmm. And listening to your interpretation reintroduces that. Okay. Um, that's what I got out of it, I guess. Cool. And Craig, I'm going to pick on you, too. Okay. Um... Well, I liked your exploration of the theme of the shadow and the light mm-hmm. and how it could be seen, you know, the battle between these two civilizations could kind of be seen as the way that we kind of all battle with our own... Right, demons. our own internal <laughs> struggles between 
anger and hatred and love and compassion. And, and so the, the storyline of the Book of Mormon really kind of playing out as a metaphor for what we struggle with internally. And uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, I love that. So we, we did the first two chapters last time. And um, I, did you remember what, like in the narrative, where we are? Ted. Ted, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I remember, Ted. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nephi's little brother, Samwise, who he just calls Ted. Yeah. I, I think that we left off um, after, gosh, his dad went into a tent. That's right. Yeah, he was living in a tent. Yeah, so they've left Jerusalem, been, been commanded to leave Jerusalem. He named the, the river Laman and the valley Lemuel. And, right. you know, Nephi talked about this. There was the, the bit about... Um, uh, Lehi getting angry at Laman and Lemuel because of all their complaining and Nephi recognizing all oh, that shadow too and, and, and anyway so that's where we are so now we're going to start with uh, chapter 3 as they're uh, in the, the wilderness and, and there's been some talks about visions and, and dreams so verse 1 and it came to pass that after I finished my deep meditative conversing with my inner self a.k.a. the Lord, I went to my dad's tent to see how he was doing, because I'm just an overall considerate person like that, especially during those times when my energetically evolving divine inner self is more closely integrated with my biologically evolved meat puppet ego self. That integration is often called integrity. It's that whole to thine own self be true thing that someday a guy named Shakespeare the son of Shakespeare, will write about in one of his plays, So Prophesy I. Verse 2. And no sooner had I stepped into the tent than Dad said, Look, son, I dreamed another dream, and I really think you and your brothers are supposed to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Because this guy named Laban, remember him? He used to come over for wings and game night. Remember that one night when he absolutely clobbered us all in a game of Settlers of Canaan? He was hoarding all the stone and the sheep and wouldn't trade any of his resources, no matter how much wood or weed or anything else we offered. Pretty ruthless, right? So yeah, anyway, that Laban guy, he has these brass plates, see? These records that contain all our sacred stories and lineages and language and culture and... Hang on a second, Nephi. Have I told you how important books are? Because they're super important. Like if someone ever asked you, how important are they? You could just reply, super. Books can change your life, son, for real, like this one. Get it? But really, do you get it? Verse 4. So anyway, I dreamed that you need to go back to Jerusalem with your brothers and get these brass plates, or all of your kids are going to forget who they are and be lost in darkness. Verse 5. And I'm telling you this because I already asked Laman and Lemuel about going back, and they, surprise, surprise, just complained about it like crazy. They think I'm nuts, that I've lost touch on reality. But I haven't lost touch on reality. I simply have woken up to an awareness that a God that I can barely even conceive of is telling me through my very own dreams to go back to the place he just told us to leave from to try to get these valuable brass plates from a powerful, wealthy, ruthless, hoarder guy named Laban who commands a veritable army of servants that fulfill his every little whim, but we have God on our side, and he can supposedly move mountains. So, what's so nuts about that? Verse 6. So what do you say, son? Will you go? Will you? You're the good one, remember? I'll bump up your allowance, and I'll even throw in a hug. Dad was not much of a hugger. <laughs> Verse 7. And I said, Dad, you had me at dream to dream. Because I know that the Lord won't command us to do anything unless he is already a really good reason why he commanded us to do that thing that he commanded us to do and that he must surely have prepared a way for us to accomplish the thing he commanded us to accomplish which we can totally accomplish if we will only just accomplish the thing that he commanded us to accomplish or at least that we can learn something unexpected from the experience of trying to accomplish the thing that he commanded us to accomplish even if he doesn't it, even if it doesn't turn out quite like we expected that it would because sometimes he commands us just to test us which is Part of the way he prepares for us to accomplish the thing we weren't able to accomplish in the way we expected, but still accomplished in a different way. So basically, if we just trust, then there's no reason to not trust 
because how can we both trust and not trust at the same time? It just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, sure, I'll go and I'll do the thing the Lord commands, which is what again? Did you all get that? Memorize it, kids. This will be one of your favorite scripture mastery scriptures one day. And just wait till you hear the primary song that goes along with it. I sang it word for word over and over again, all the way back to Jerusalem. My brothers totally loved it. Verse 8. And it came to pass that when I said all these things to my dad, um, and when he sat through my whole alphabet soup of reformed Egyptian words of a response, he was extremely glad to have put little pieces of cloth into his ears ahead of time, like he had dreamed to do ahead of time in a dream, so as to shield himself from my incessant singing and rambling, while still being pleased that I agreed to go and do without having to suffer through the sound of my own internal mental gymnastics as I dealt with my doubts and fears without really acknowledging I was dealing with my doubts and fears. And those little pieces of ear cloth, boys and girls, this was how the first earplugs were invented. Pretty neat, huh? So now you know the story has to be true. Verse 9. And so my brothers and me started heading back to Jerusalem with me singing, I will go, I will do, with unabashed confidence in the righteousness of my own self, smiling confidently, supremely secure in my righteously self-blinding, trusting acceptance of the fact that my righteous self had once again so righteously, so very, very righteously met the conditions of obedience through which I had temporarily once again earned my father's muted acceptance and love. Acceptance and love that was confidently and securely delivered to me, by me, once again, sigh, like so many dry, hardened orange Pavlovian fish biscuits in an elaborate Dharma polar bear cage Rorschach attaboy test, yum yum, which confident and secure smile on my self-righteous face made Layman and Lemuel start searching for the perfect size rods with which to thoroughly smite me, bigly, but we'll get there. Verse 10. And so when we finally got back to Jerusalem, we asked each other which of us should go ask Laban for the brass plates. Verse 11. And since each one of us touched our noses at exactly the same time, yelling, not it, we decided to draw straws from the pile of nearly rods that my brothers had collected for my imminent smiting, but that were actually too small and flimsy to effectively smite me with. And the idea of shoving them up my fingernails to torture me hadn't been invented yet. So we picked from those straws and Layman chose the longest straw, which was also the last straw, which is where the phrase last straw comes from, by the way, yet from us. More proof that this fiction isn't really just a fiction, which meant that Layman was the one who had to go talk to Laban. Verse 12. So he did. Verse 13. But Laban said no and called my brother a thief and threatened to kill him if he ever saw his face again. Verse 14. And Laman came back to us and shrugged, saying, Well, I tried, but clearly it didn't work. I guess Dad isn't all that inspired with these dreams after all, just like I thought. So let's go back to the wilderness now, fast. Verse 15. But I was all, no way, because I made up this little song about going and doing. Here, let me sing it for you. And I started singing the go and do song again. Verse 16. And they were like, no, please, anything but that. Fine, fine, let's try again. Verse 17. So you see, the Lord did prepare a way for them to do what he wanted them to do, I guess. And we all went back to our old house and gathered all our gold and precious things, which were just sitting there with our cat who had zero interest in going with us into the wilderness and had decided to just stick around and be destroyed along with the entire city of Jerusalem, which destruction was sure to happen any day now. Stupid cat. Verse 18, which was why dad took us into the wilderness in the first place to avoid the destruction, not because of the cat. Well, not completely. I mean, he never really liked the cat. So, yeah, sort of that's why he left, but there were other reasons, too. Verse 19. Like that we had to get away and get the brass plates out of the city before they got destroyed, too. Because we needed those brass plates so we would never forget who we are or where we came from. Remember that one, actually. It's actually vitally important that you never forget. Again, uh, maybe you already have forgotten, in which case you'll have to remember first who you really are, and where you really came from. Wickedness and fear and shadow will try to make you forget or keep you from remembering or make you think that it's just unknowable. It's their little meat puppet self-preservation tactic. Verse 20, but that bright, eternal, quantumly conscious, energetic inner self inside of you, 
that piece of you that is pure and eternal and is living this life to find joy in new experiences and growth, that eternal spark of energy that is connected to God and that is God and that scientists will someday identify with Einstein's unified field theory and that George Lucas will call the force that animates all living things and that Yoda will refer to when he says, Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Trust me, it will happen, so prophesy I. That eternal part of you that knows who and what it is, even if your meat puppet selves don't, yet. Because they're just one of thousands of meat puppet masks that your soul has worn over millennia. And this particular version is threatened by those and that truth and chooses to remain in peaceful, ignorant bliss about it. Remember when Joseph Smith said that if he told everybody everything that he knew they would seek his life? This is part of what he meant. Of course, you won't find any of this in the brass plates, but you will learn from those how important it is to remember who you are and where you came from. That will be your key in your ongoing battle against shadow. So let's get our stuff and take it to Laban and convince him to trade for the brass plates. Verse 21. And after this manner of language did I guilt my brothers into not being such whiny little wussies. Verse 22. So we stopped by the old house and got all of our valuable things. Verse 23. And then headed back to Laban's place. Verse 24. And we offered to trade all our stuff for the brass plates. 25. But he said no. He still wanted our stuff, of course, so he just took it. And then he sent his servants after us to kill us. Verse 26. So we ran and left all our stuff behind. Verse 27. And we hid in a cave outside the city. Verse 28. And Laman and Lemuel were mad, but also sort of happy, because now they could start smiting me with their rods. Verse 29. But then the most amazing thing happened. An angel appeared and told them to stop smiting me. I know, right? A real lady angel. Imagine that. And the lady angel was all like, why are you smiting your younger brother? And they were all, because he needs to know his place. And the lady angel was like, don't you know he's way better than you guys in every conceivable way? And they were like, nuh-uh. And she was all, uh-huh. God has totally made him a ruler over you because he's good and you're bad. And I'm all, um, angel, please, could you tone it down a bit? This isn't really helping. Verse 30. So the angel left. Verse 31. And as soon as she was gone, my brother started smiting me again. Yeah, I don't really get it either. I guess their shadows were just so powerful and their fear of Laban was so strong that they couldn't even see the forest for the trees, even when those trees came in the form of a freaking lady angel. Their shadow rage and jealousy and wounded pride just blinded them to the reality of what they had just experienced. So maybe that's the takeaway here. And that's the end of chapter 3. All right. What, what did you think of chapter 3 of the Book of Shadow? I love the, um, the journey that he goes on rationalizing why they have to do this thing because they have to do it because... <laughs> the circular logic and yeah, the do the things that the Lord commands. Yeah. Into a circle. yeah. Yeah, it almost reminded me of the bargaining stage of the grief process. <laughs> yeah. To, to, like, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with the bargaining stage of the grief process. Well, like you're saying, just rationalizing and just trying to find a way to make it work, yeah. you know, to make it make sense. And um, I thought it was funny, too, because he's trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. And oftentimes we, um, you know, if you lead with your head and not your heart, you're trying to rationalize everything. And oftentimes the truth isn't something that seems very rational. Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that we're taught in church a lot is, is just that like God is, is, um, available to do these really giant, miraculous, strange things. And he works in strange, miraculous ways. Um, but I think that sometimes you get stuck in obedience instead of listening to your divine guidance. And I was hearing him just ignoring his intuition and obeying, Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just my current issues popping up. I don't know. Hmm. But that's what I heard. Okay. I liked it. Well, it's kind of the safe way to go, right? If you're if you're in a system and you're there's somebody to follow and you just do whatever they say and kind of rationalize it afterwards, then there's there's some level of safety that you'll feel. So so you're thinking that 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 Nephi in this case was just kind of like 
blindly obedient to things that he didn't feel like. Well, it's cause, 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 oh, jeez. <laughs> so, so like, like uh, th- this line between him listening to his inner voice and being true to that or listening to something that somebody else is telling him to do and he's just doing it for that, is that, I mean, do you think that's the struggle that he's dealing with there and he's trying to make this outside thing part of his inner voice or do you think that it is or is that just something that I'm thinking about and you're not? Um, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think that it's like, it's, it's easy, like obedience is an easy thing to do for people who are not curious. Hmm. Um, or who are scared. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's just like a, it's a lit path and especially if it's a generational thing that, that, that you're involved in and, um, you know, family, a, a patriarchal family obviously kind of falls into that where it's like, you know, even the, the reference to the need to go get these records of this is where we came from and this is how we do things. Uh, it's, yeah, it's very hard for, for people who are curious to, to feel comfortable or, or um, um, what's the word, satisfied mm. in life doing that. Yeah. So Larry, what do you think? Is, is this what you thought you were walking into? I had no idea. <laughs> um, but, you know, it does kind of reveal to us um, the dangers of obedience theology. Mm. Uh, because what obedience theology does is it lets me off the hook. I can blame God for everything that's great, and then I can be blamed that I'm not faithful enough when it doesn't turn out so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really one of the dangers, I think, of the Book of Mormon's message, mm-hmm. that uh, we've got to unhook from what it really means to have other people give witness to who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that we have to unhook what what is a divine inspiration from just sometimes that gut level feeling that this is just what I have to do. Mm-hmm. And neither are wrong, but we're punished either way by culture, by family, by our faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, we, when we're going to unhook, um, the danger is then you're, you feel untethered. So then what do you believe in? And so... This is a way, I think, for me to be able to take responsibility for how I perceive God, take responsibility for what I believe uh, others have received as inspiration, but I don't have to make it my own way that I have to follow as well, Um, which is a lot of where I think um, some faith traditions even though they talk about agency, they really don't mean it. Because if they did mean agency, then obedience theology would have been gone centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And that's the tension we live in, even today. Mm-hmm. Is that I, if, I'm, if I'm inspired by God, I have, you know, I have the agency to follow. If Nephi was inspired by God, Nephi has the agency to follow. The way it's constructed, though, is if you do it, everything works out. If you don't, you're screwed. And that's not how I perceive God. Mm-hmm. So I'm always in a disconnect with that. W- would you tell this part of the story in a different way? No, I, I wouldn't tell it in a different way. I, what I want to affirm is that we, we each have to use our voice of faith to understand what we're encountering of the divine. Mm. And by using our voice of faith, we are asking the difficult questions that I think faith pushes us toward. Faith is not blind obedience. Mm. It is the challenge to say, that's crap, or I don't get it, or you know what, I am so confused by all this right now, I just need to stop. That's faith, not just... You know, don't push, push on. And this is kind of highlighting that faith is actually the courage to say, really? Is this something that could happen? And if I don't believe it, does that mean I'm faithless? Or am I exercising my agency to say, yeah, I don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And then can we engage in the conversation about what it actually means 
to honor God within all of us. Mm. Do you have anything to add to this, Hillary? Just that it's brilliant on your part. <laughs> and the fact that you mentioned wings as part of the menu, yeah. you, you just that, that part of it is divine. That is divine. Is. Yeah. Because that's Larry's absolute favorite. That's food communion food. for me. Yeah. Wings. Well, it, it, did you see him move when you said wings? I didn't. No. Oh my God. But 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 I'll have to share with you later on the, the word of wingdom. That I, that I wrote because I the, 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 there is there there are celestial degrees and yeah, terrestrial absolutely. and celestial degrees of consuming wings. Absolutely. Oh my God. Um, Be to God. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll find that and, and read that one of these nights with it. And the cat thing was hilarious. Oh yeah. The cat. Yes. Yeah, you know, like one of my favorite parts in listening back to the first one was when you laughed, Lauren, at the like weird dream with the hillbilly stuff. I'm like, all right, I need to put more of that in here. <laughs> the, the kind of like bizarre non sequitur stuff. All right, chapter four, and I, I, I'm still I'm still kind of interested in like I don't know how how to to put that in with this narrative the, the obedience theology in there because there's you know like there's been times of course as a kid I totally related with Nephi and like that's who I'm going to be because that's good. And then when I was older, I related with Laman and Lemuel because I'm like, they're the ones that are thinking this through and going, this is stupid. We just came from this place. Why, you know? Yeah. And, and so like now I'm like, well, where am I in that thing? Because I see the shortcomings of the Laman and Lemuel just rejecting everything. I see the shortcomings of the Nephi, blind, Pollyanna, hopeful, just anything's good. And even if it isn't good, well, then I'll find a way to spin it in mental gymnastic to make it good. Um, I'm still trying to locate myself in that. And so one of the tensions that obedience theology presents for us in the 21st century, I believe, is that if we throw it all out, then are we essentially saying that our, our choices don't have consequences? Mm -hmm. I think exactly is the opposite. Yeah. That in the 21st century way of looking at any of these passages, we are saying... Our choices, are the decisions we make, they have consequences, but they're not consequences in which God or the divine or anyone would cut off a relationship with mm. us. But there are going to be consequences to the yeah. choices we make. Mm -hmm. Obedience theology says there are no consequences. You're damned yeah. or you're blessed. Yeah. And we, I think today, without being rational, in the 21st century, there's a continuum of how we encounter that understanding. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I make poor choices all the time. I screw up all the time. But I still never separate myself from the reality yeah. that even in that, I'm still loved. Even if I don't love myself, I have to accept God loves me. Mm -hmm. But there are consequences to my yeah. decisions. doesn't mean I'm damned, but it just means... You know what? There's something I'm going to have to answer for. Yeah, and and the the, the what you said about God's not going to cut you off. Yeah, you know, um, I, I don't I don't know how clear it is, but the the way that I'm conceiving of God as I'm writing this thing isn't that there's like a God out there up in the heavens kind of thing, but more like inside of us Absolutely. at a really deep level, and you know, trying to synthesize it with all this quantum science unified field theory stuff where if if there is this eternal energy that's the source of all things that we're kind of connected to at a very very deep quantum level yeah. it's not it's not that that is withdrawing from us it's our own egos that are blocking yes. us from being able to to hear it recognize it trust it um, and that's kind of a main conflict that I have going through. And that's really what shadow is. Shadow yes. is that part of our biology that keeps us safe. It protects us. It's our amygdala, our fight or flight response. It's yeah. part of our mortal, biological, evolved protection. But it can also be that thing that blocks us from connecting yeah. in, inward. So is it enough for us to accept that sometimes it's a mystery? Yeah, always a mystery. We, can't, we don't totally. have to explain it all. Yes, right. And right. so if we say it's a mystery, if, if, if we believe in a divine being resident within us, mm -hmm. it, would, it is not um, 
we can't be cut off from that. Yeah. We can choose to block it, but being cut off, if it's truly within us, it's like blood is always in me, but yeah. I don't see it unless what happens, I've got an injury or those kind of things. Right. So maybe this whole notion of just saying that it's a mystery and also to be able to say, you know what, what's going on in my head, yeah. sometimes isn't even what's coming out of my mouth, right. but it's working for me. Yeah. And I've got to be okay with that. I used to think that that was a cop-out, the mystery thing, but the fact that we can't even explain consciousness, right. like that itself is a mystery. So yeah. it's, it's not really... A, and, it's and, not and I'm glad you brought up consciousness because that, to me that's like the, that, that razor blade line that you either make a choice where you say this quantum energy that nobody is going to deny that is part of our makeup at a right. subatomic level. But the question is, is it conscious or not? And right. the default assumption is, well, we can't prove that it is, so we're going to say it's not. Yeah. And, and then, well, okay, but, but why? What if you assume that it is? Um, and explore that for a little bit. And it, so it's kind of that question of consciousness that I'm trying to play with a little bit in here, too, and you know, still uh, not totally on the fence. I, I like, I like the, the consciousness side of it better. And I, and I was having this conversation with my wife the other night um, about a related issue, but, but she's saying, it sounds like what you're saying is you're just like making the choice to be on that side of the, the fence, the choice to believe instead of, you know, not to believe. And I, I said, yeah, you know, I've been on both sides of the fence. And now I, I can very clearly say how I feel. You know, do I feel like I have a, I'm living a life full of meaning and purpose when I'm denying all of these things and saying, I don't know, so I don't know, you know. But if I go, well, maybe, and I can put a hope on that, and then what does that do for me? How does that make me feel as I'm living my life? Like, okay, it feels better that way. And I can still do it with, looking at it as a mystery and having the humility that I don't know if there's really consciousness or not at that, you know, quantum level. Mm -hmm. But when I'm exploring it and playing around, it's sure a lot more fun on this side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoy it. But I, you know, I, can, I have fun on the other side too. So, um, and there's not just two sides. Anyway. All right. Chapter four. This is when we get uh, Laban. We're going we're gonna to get, get through this. All right. Verse one. So I said, come on, guys, let's go back and get those plates. We have God and lady angels on our side, right? Of course we'll get what God sent us here to get, because that's the whole go and do thing I told you about earlier. So fear not, have faith, which is basically two different ways of saying the same thing. Verse 2, because remember Moses, he beat Pharaoh, right? See, verse 3, so we can beat Laban, right? Verse 4, but this just made Laman and Lemuel even more angry at me. I know, sort of one-dimensional characters here, right? But that's sort of the point, because they represent shadow. And that's sort of what shadow does. Verse 5. So they hid outside the city walls while I snuck in, and it was night. Verse 6. And I took some deep breaths to tune out all the noise and just follow my instincts, trusting that they would guide me where I needed to go. Because remember, I'm a metaphor too, especially right now where I'm symbolizing the need we all have to faithfully trust our inner voice. Verse 7. And as I was walking around, lo and behold, there was a man laying on the ground, and he was drunk and unconscious. Verse 8. And lo and behold, it was, wait for it, Laban. Verse 9. So I drew a sword from a sheath. Because isn't that the sort of thing you just do when you come across a drunk, unconscious man? You kill them and go through their stuff, right? Because that's total moral and ethical thing to do. Okay, so maybe I'm more of a complex and nuanced metaphor than my brothers. Verse 10. But all joking aside, my instinctual inner self told me to kill Laban. Dangerous territory here. Even my shadow was afraid. Of course, shadow is always afraid, which might make shadow the most complex, nuanced, well-rounded metaphor in this whole story. But look, shadow isn't always bad. Shadow gives us valuable information, like... Don't kill this drunk, unconscious, defenseless person because you don't want to become the kind of guy who just goes around killing drunk, unconscious, defenseless people. That's important for me to know about myself. So, see, at its very core, Shadow's main job is to protect us. And in this case, it was telling me not to become a cold-blooded murderer. And nor should you. Nor should you. Verse 11. But my true inner voice said, Look, you tried to do this the nice, peaceful way multiple times. If you just take the plates while he's drunk and leave the city with them, this guy's going to come after you and kill you. 
He's tried it before. And remember how important it is to remember who you are and where you come from. Do you want your posterity to, to forget that and to fall into destruction? I mean, spoiler alert, it's definitely going to happen anyway. But do you want that to be on your head because you didn't face your fears and hearken unto your inner voice and do the right thing that seems so wrong and will be a thing that mars even this story for as long as it exists? Verse 12. And my true inner voice said, kill him. And my shadow self said, no. Verse 13. And my true inner voice said, murder is never good, but there are worse things than physical death, like entire generations of people being lost, like they are today, when these words will be read and heard by dozens and dozens of people, magically transmitted through space and time in a digital format you cannot even imagine in the 1820s, or 600 BC for that matter, whenever you think that this thing is initially being written. People must wake up to who and what they really are. People must remember the connection they have to each other and to all life on this planet. People must make hard decisions and kill certain bad habits that keep them in comfortable denial of who they really are. And that is what Laban represents, you see. So in that sense, it's far better that one fictional man in a fictional story should be murdered by another fictional man in the same fictional story than for an entire nation to dwindle in unbelief about who they really are and bring destruction to themselves and to the planet as a result. Verse 14, he had a point. Verse 15, an important point. Verse 16, a point that hopefully has not been lost on you readers. Verse 17, sometimes we really have to carefully choose between the lesser of two evils. Verse 18, so I did it. Off with his head, with his own sword, poetic justice, I suppose. But I took absolutely no joy in it, and I pray that I never have to face such a difficult decision again. Verse 19, and in some ways, I guess I was doing him a favor, because, you know, hangovers can be really uncomfortable. And now he didn't have to worry about waking up to a massive hangover the following morning. So, after mercifully ending this and all future potential headaches, I quickly and thoroughly sponged up all the blood gushing and pulsating in bursts from his neck and ran his clothes through a quick but heavy-duty wash cycle. <laughs> With God, nothing is impossible, right? And then I put those clothes on me. Verse 20. And after I dressed up to look like Laban, I went to his house to get the brass plates, and Laban's servants saw me. Verse 21. And he thought I was Laban. Verse 22. And he spoke to me as if I were Laban. Verse 23. And I summoned my inner Wonder Woman powers and spoke back to him in Laban's own voice. Oh, why couldn't I have used a golden lasso instead of that sword? Verse 24. And I told him to get the brass plates and bring them to me. Verse 25. And he did. Verse 26. Because I totally fooled him. A big, awesome, divinely sanctioned lie. And he followed me with the plates. Verse 27. And he talked the entire time as if I were Laban. And honestly, if I hadn't been so traumatized by chopping off that dude's head and then dressing up in his clothes and speaking with his voice, I might have found this kind of fun and amusing, but I didn't, not at all. Verse 28. And when my brothers saw me with Laban's servant behind me, they freaked out, also thinking I was Laban and that I was coming to kill them. Verse 29. But I yelled at them in my own voice, Dear brethren, for it beest I, verily even thine own brother, whom thou calleth Nephi. Yeah, I know, we talked kind of weird and clunky back then, even in a panic. But thankfully they heard me and stopped running. Verse 30, but Laban's servant, dude, that guy was scared, even more than when Justin Timberlake will someday start crying after getting punked by Ashton Kutcher on MTV, so prophesy I. And the servant of Laban turned and started to run. Verse 31, but thankfully my inner Wonder Woman was still with me because I just reached out and grabbed him by the collar and held him a few inches off the ground while his legs spun beneath him like a bad guy from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Another future thing, trust me. Rousers, Raggy! I just wanted to do that. Verse 32, and the servant's name was Zoram, and I told him that if he listened and trusted what I told him, and keep in mind this is a metaphor for listening to and trusting your inner voice and to those who listen and trust their own inner voices, that he would be safe. Verse 33, and I promised him that if he came with us into the wilderness, we would spare his life and treat him like a brother. Not like a smite you with the rod, even when a lady angel tells you not to kind of brother, but you get the gist. Verse 34, and I told him that even though he really didn't have any good alternative options, 
we were the good guys on God's side, and didn't he want to be a good guy too? Verse 35, and Zoram agreed. Because really, how could he not agree? And could clear, and he could clearly see my Wonder Woman powers in full display. 36, so off we went with the plates of brass and a new best friend who we never imagined would ultimately father an entire race of people that would become so self-righteous that they would build a powerful, beautiful death trap called the Ramiumptum. Da-da-da. And that, my friend, is called foreshadowing. Foreshadowing the Zoramites. And that's the end of chapter five. So, thank you for the smattering of, of modest applause. Um, so, Hillary, last time you said that one of the reasons that you didn't like the Book of Mormon because with, with all of the head smiting. Smoting. How, how did you do uh, with this? I liked your description. I, w- I felt like I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and you liked that. Okay, that's creepy. Actually, Glenn, what I have is a lot of homework. Mm. I, I'm going to go back and get it and compare because mm-hmm. that's what's inspired me and I hope it does others to go back and, and give the Book of Mormon a second look because mm. a lot of folks have left it. Yeah. Left it on the shelf and you brought new interest and new um, insight and just the the clever nature of how you're expressing it is just so appealing. Whether it's just playing with it, whether just having you know, fun the, with it, the blood's coming out after the headaches <laughs> went away. I mean. Well, did you ever see? There's a, there's a movie uh, that that somebody in the Mormon Church made several years ago that was like the Book of Mormon Volume One and. It's painfully hilarious to watch. Oh, the live action one, right? Oh, yeah. The, that you guys did. Yeah, yeah. We did an episode yeah. on it. Um, yeah, it was cool. actually, we, we did it towards the tail end of the Mormon Expression days, but um, it was a lot of the, those of us that would go on to become infants. And yeah, yeah that movie is just hilarious. And there were certain things that, like watching it, I went, there's no way this would happen. What, what about all the blood? With I never thought about that before. The other thing that I kind of hinted at in here that, that came from that movie was that Laman first went to Laban and Laban said, no, and if I see your face again, you're dead. And then when they went back the second time to like give him his stuff, it's almost like Laban's like, oh, who is this new person that I've never met before? In the Book of Mormon narrative, at least. But then when you watch this on the movie, they had to like put masks over their face. You know, they were like banditos from the Wild West or something. And it was like, that wouldn't raise some suspicions for Laban that these masked men are coming in and like, you've never met before. Do not look at the face behind them. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just like so much. It, it, it was so funny. That's kind of why I chuckle, Hillary, when last time you're like, I just want to see this in a movie. I'm like, oh, no way. No, no. As soon as you do that, it breaks the spell. You know, it's just like, oh, no, that would never happen. That's impossible. But, um, Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you liked the Laban thing and you want to go back and, and, and re-explore the Book of Mormon. I don't know what's going to happen when I get to Second Nephi, mm-hmm. but um, we'll, I'll, I'll have some fun with that, too, I well, think. Well, you know, there is the—I haven't seen the movie yet, but The Disaster Artist, the James Franco movie that was made about the movie The Room— are you guys familiar with this? I, I know that there was this movie with James Franco, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah. It was like the worst movie ever made. Oh, right. So it's, when you watch it, it's super yeah. funny. So they made they, they made a movie that, about this movie. Mm. So I don't know. Maybe there could be a, an opportunity still in the works. <laughs> could be. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to wait for my James Franco to come around and get the Mormon James Franco. <laughs> yeah. I noticed your Scooby and your Yoda are pretty similar. Oh, really? <laughs> I, maybe you should try narrating this in Yoda's voice. Or oh my gosh, that would get old so fast. <laughs> <laughs> that would get old so fast. I mean, and they already talked funny in the Book of Mormon, and Yoda talks funny. Why not? That's right. Yeah. It could it could be a match? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And any any final things or recommendations, suggestions for future chapters or way to approach it or anything in this one that you thought, yeah, maybe that should be a little bit different. Because remember, I'm writing this, so like part of the reason I'm doing this is to get feedback so that helps me through the writing process with it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's fascinating. Um, I notice a lot of... Um, I guess this, this, there's a lot of this that's reflecting on me. Mm. Um, 
so I don't know if this is too far off or not, but I thought it was really interesting. I'm, I'm the rescuer type of personality. Mm -hmm. And so um, being raised in the Mormon church, you're taught to rescue everyone, mm -hmm. that you have to be a missionary, you have to save everyone else's soul. Yeah. And coming out of that, I realized that I'm responsible for me, you're responsible for you, my mom's responsible for herself, nobody can fix you but you, and that you have to save yourself. And what was interesting was, you know, Nephi was going out and doing all this to save how many people mm -hmm. in his mind that needed to be saved. Um, so I, I guess it's just interesting because that's like me to want to go and save and rescue everybody and mm -hmm. do these giant things to, you know, save everybody, not for me, but for them. Um, but it's all fear-based action and it has nothing to do with yourself and you're, you know, putting all that energy outward instead of inward. Mm. That's interesting and it makes me, it makes me think I, I want to give Nephi at some point an existential crisis. <laughs> So that so that he starts thinking less about saving everybody else and really turns that inward about you know his own lost and fallen state and what that means and hmm. I don't know if this is too far off or not, but kind of continuing on what you're talking about with um, just obeying um, obedience theology, um, I personally have had to come to the realization that I am a soul here having a human experience. Mm. And my human experiences can either further my soul's growth or can hinder my soul's growth. Mm. And the human experience, the ego, is what gets in the way, yeah. or shadow. Yeah. Um, and I find that our negative human experiences that get stuck in us are what keep us from growing. And so, um, you know, when I listen to this, it sounds like Nephi and everybody else is so worried about everything outside of themselves instead of looking mm -hmm. inward and trying to rescue themselves. Um, so this entire time I'm just thinking like, dude, go home, take care of yourself. Everyone will take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but again, that's, that's my stuff that's yeah. getting you know, reflected with the story. No, thank you for sharing that. It, you know, like when, when I do get, and I think this is second Nephi, um, when I get into the, there must needs be opposition in all things stuff. Mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things I want to explore it is kind of what, what, what you were saying and, and asking the question, if, if you're looking at eternal progression as souls that are either improving or not with each lifetime, is that really, is that really what's going, you know, because I, I think there's a value to that opposition, the value to even the layman and lemuels in the world and things that they're learning and they're getting out of it, even though it just seems like they're obstinate and they're not progressing forward, but there's stuff that they're having to deal with too. And that there's a value in that, that, that maybe isn't that easy to recognize. Um, the, the, the reason I like that idea is because I want to become less judgmental of people, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just kind of like accepting the things that are, and I don't, there's a danger in that. And what about the people that are horrible and they need to be stopped and, yeah. yeah, yeah, but I think that just happens naturally. Like, I don't think that's really anything to worry about. Yeah, what 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 is it? Explain what that. Like I, like what I, what I happens mean, naturally? Um, that we will be turned off by people, or or um, unafraid to denounce people that deserve it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's a, it's this slippery slope argument of well, if you you know. If you have like this view on moral relativism where anything goes, then right is that kind of like what you're? It is. I know, no, I'm glad you brought up moral relativism because that's really at the heart of the struggle that I'm having with it. Because it's it, it's and it's almost a difference between what what is and what should. And what is that like the ought not? Oh, the is you know, and the ought. Yeah, the is and the, the ought kind of thing. That it's like well, may, maybe. It shouldn't be this way, but it is this way, you know, and all of the hoping and wanting to change it in the world really doesn't impact that. And maybe, maybe that's a distraction from the inner stuff that we have to, we should focus on for ourselves. And, but, but again, I don't know, it, like I get really uncomfortable even exploring those ideas because I can see different sides of it at the same time. But that's what, that's why I like having the conversations and sharing it and getting different feedback and working through it. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, uh, things that popped up for me in hearing this chapter was, uh, and it's been articulated so well already in that, 
Um, if we choose to respond in a particular way, our motivation can be, I'm earning brownie points for heaven, mm -hmm. or I'm doing this just because I think that's what a good person does. Yeah. Or when we see injustice and brokenness and violence, we stand up and say enough that this is not what should be happening. The motivation for us is always that moral compass. Um, and I think um, in, in this particular case, the backstory of trying to get these plates so that the story can be further, you know, sent out and lived out is, is kind of a motivation about why it has to happen in whatever way it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But today, is it fair for us to accept that I live a life that is hopefully morally uh, grounded because I, I think that's the way I should live my life. And when I see someone that has a need or I see someone that is doing something that I find to be an injustice, yeah. I have an obligation, you know, I think, to be able to say, hey, you know, that's not right the way you treat that individual or that situation. And um, when, you have a, when you have a culture that, hey, you can't tell me what I'm doing because you're infringing on my rights, Mm -hmm. You're actually going against the very nature of what it means to have a moral compass. Right. And um, so we have to accept responsibility for that. Now, in church speak, that's called salvation, right? I'm, I'm going to do this because I want to make sure that if I tell you about the gospel, if I tell you all these things, ding, I've got a star and I'm moving on up. Yeah. And if you don't accept it, I'm sorry, boom, you're going someplace else. That's not what I think um, we want to be about right. as, for me as a disciple yeah. in, in a Christian context. Yeah. Because I value the fact that my Buddhist monk friend says to me, you know, when she closes off an email with deep bow, mm -hmm. and may you be wrapped in a blanket of shalom. Mm -hmm. She gets something that a lot of folks don't get, and that is to respect that our grounding is a grounding that is beyond ourselves. And it's not trying to earn our way anyway. It's being respectful and honoring the thing that compels us. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes I don't know that we always get that message. And the Book of Mormon yeah. gives us an opportunity to wrestle with that question. Sure. But in the end, it's kind of left with, well, if you would have been better, your yeah. life would have been better. And that, to me, is, is the problem. Yeah, I, I see it as a problem, too. And, you know, like you talked about brownie points. You're, like, dinging a star. Yeah. And, and that's kind of why I put the thing in there about, like, Nephi um, responding to his dad's, you know, like, seeking approval from his dad sure. that doesn't come. And, you know, like, like that your parents put these conditions on you that if you do this, then you'll get the love. You'll get, you'll get that. And right. that that is kind of a problem when that's the primary motivation. It's a very surface level reason for doing something, but, but at the same time, very important to, to your psyche and to your mental health too. Yeah. But, but how damaging and scarring when that's what is put into your brain that motivates you to do stuff is always seeking the approval of authority figures and, and that. I, I had a question for you, Larry, and what you were oh. talking about. How do you interpret the story of Jesus with the crucifixion, he's, he's being beaten, he got the thorns on his head, he's nailed to a cross. At any time, he could have stretched out his hand and just smote them and stopped it from happening, but he let it happen, and his message at the end was, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Right. So like when we're, when we're in the face of injustices, whether it's to us or to, not, or to, to others, you know, like to follow that example of Christ in that story would be sure. a very passive kind of approach that I don't think a lot of people are comfortable with. Any, no. but so how, how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, so that's one of the moral dilemma, dilemmas of the 21st century because um, Jesus lived in a time when individual rights didn't exist, mm. and Jesus was crucified because of the power of Rome to be able to say you know what, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to keep people in line, and if you don't like it, oh well, you know, we're going to do this. Jesus, I believe, is sending the example over and over and over again. You're going to have stuff happen in life. 
and how you choose to respond to it is what you're going to be grounded in. Right. And in this case, you know what? Rome is going to do this, whether or not I want it to. And I don't buy the theology that Jesus had to do this in order for God to prove, ha ha, I win in the end. Mm -hmm. I don't buy that theology. Mm -hmm. What I do buy is this understanding that Jesus said, look, this is going to happen. I'm going to go through it. And in the end, my disciples are going to see that no matter what happens with them, they're still not going to be alone. And I don't care if it's five years later or 500 years later, this is something that's going to happen in life, and I'm not going to leave you alone, but I'm going to die this earthly death. Mm -hmm. And that's the part we don't understand, because it makes no sense to me that we don't celebrate, as a Christian, why we don't celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. We always, it seems in modern day Christianity, they're clinging to the cross, mm -hmm. which is Rome's symbol. And what we're, what we're called to embrace is it's empty and, and God found the way all the way through it. And, you know, Jesus, when he appears later, he didn't come out all, totally healed. He still had scars. The wounds were still there. And he asked them, can you accept that even in my woundedness, I'm still whole? Big question for us today. Mm. Yeah. Because... If we're not all together, will you still accept me? If I'm an alcoholic, are you going to kick me out of your church? Yeah. If I'm a drug addict, if I'm, you know, if I've been abused by my husband or, you know, all those things, will you kick me out? If I'm not whole, will you accept me? And that's exactly the opposite, I think, of what I believe Jesus has said to us throughout all the gospel accounts. Mm -hmm. It's not your wholeness that makes you worthy. It's your willingness to say, I don't get all this and I make mistakes but I'm willing to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's beautiful. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's unconditional love, right? Accepting even though yeah. you're whole. It is, but one of the, one of the um, opportunities of unconditional love, and I, I'm doing some self-confessing here, mm. I struggle with loving myself every single day. Yeah. Because I'm like, dang it, I shouldn't have said that. Or, right. why did I make that decision? Or, gosh, I, I know this needs to happen. And so loving myself is to accept that in the midst of all those questions, I'm not a screw-up. I just made that decision. And that God, what I call God, is forever saying to me, hey, dude, it's okay. We're going to work this out. Things are going to happen. Now, if I break the law then there are consequences for that. If I don't follow policy, there are things that are going to happen to that. But every single day, that decision about, do I actually actually love myself yeah. enough to be able to accept that? It wasn't until I was completely broken by divorce mm. that I began to understand what it meant to have to love myself first. Yeah. And that acceptance led me to a deeper understanding of what it means to appreciate, to value, um, as Henry Nouwen says, the life of the beloved. Yeah. He says, every person lives more under the curse than they, un than they live under the words to hear, you are my beloved. That's profound. And, and in a modern culture, in the Western culture, belovedness is rejected because, hey, you're not tough, or you don't have the answers, and yet, in the midst, I think, of who we really are, at the deepest core of who I am, it's every day, can I embrace my belovedness by God just as I am? Yeah. I'm, and I'm glad you brought up that self-love deficit, because um, that, that's been a, a, a prominent theme that keeps coming up um, for, for me for the last several months, since we interviewed Ross Rosenberg for the Luminous Brain podcast, and I started hearing about... Going from self-love deficit to self-love abundance, and w that's one of the latent motivations behind exploring this idea of shadow through the Book of Mormon, shadow the Lamanite, because I, I have this suspicion that that shadow is part of what keeps us in a state of self-love deficit, and so if 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 I can, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm recording this and I can go back and I can listen to to what you said, Larry, and think about it more, like because if I can integrate that more into the writing here where one thing that people might take out of this is a recognition 
of the need to love themselves more and even some steps on how they could get to that or at least start that or find a place to start that, that I would feel really good yeah. about that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Laura. So Ryan uh, has this really great way of explaining how the Mormon God is presented as okay. type yeah. A narcissist. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, and so I grew up with a narcissistic father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having parents who followed a narcissistic God, in, well, in my view, um, or type A or, or conditional love, um, yeah. I then, they follow that example. So then I feel like a lot of my self-love deficit comes from believing, or I used to believe in a God that was, un, that was conditional with his love. Um, and I then felt that my parents' love was conditional. And so if you feel like your parents' love is conditional and that your God's love is conditional, how do you ever learn to really love yourself? Right. And so I had to come... If you're not meeting all of the conditions all of the time. Exactly. So basically all of the impossible things to do all of the time. Loved. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I came to the realization one day that I was still applying a lot of these things to a God that I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And so when I started figuring out who is the God that I believe in? What's what's that personality like? Because I was raised with this personality, and I don't like those conditions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's how my God works. You know that you have to do X Y Z in order to get into heaven, or mm-hmm. you have to do X Y Z to see your family again, or you know that's that's I don't believe in that. Um, so a lot of my self love de- deficit became from me believing well, me following the rules of the God I didn't believe in. Yeah, um, and and I I. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll want to talk to Ryan about this more at some point because I, I definitely see that in there. I, I think if you look really closely, you'll see that the LDS God, and I want to be sensitive to my community of Christ brothers in here and separate the LDS God from the community of Christ God. I'm not as familiar with the way that you view God. But, Do you want us but, to come sit over on that side? No, no, no. We're perfectly separated. Okay. We're perfectly okay. separate. But, <laughs> but um, that... Uh, that, that, that I, I would suspect that the, the LDS God is kind of an amalgamation, that there are narcissistic elements to it, and then there are probably other non-narcissistic, because it's really a, a reflection and a projection of the different leaders that have imprinted, and the different people in the church that imprint, you know, that project what they see on, onto the characteristics of God. And, and I don't know if, if Joseph Smith, my, my suspicion about Joseph Smith is that he started off with not a narcissistic God, but as it became more important to maintain power and, and to solidify power and doing that through priesthood and yeah. obedience that it became this tool and this mechanism that especially Brigham Young and, and others like him who were narcissists that, that were able to manipulate Joseph um, and kind of turn Joseph against himself in ways, I think. Um, that, that That's why you would see that so prevalently in the, the doctrinal explanations of God because of those men and those leaders that did that to it. And, and that's what the institution is about today. It's about that, that, that obedience theology that we talked about earlier. One of the dangers, uh, well, I need to own this, from a community of Christ perspective, I should say, is that we believe in a dynamic, evolving relationship with God, not mm-hmm. a static, figured-out, locked-in understanding of God. Mm-hmm. And so as we grow in our understanding of God, I think our application and struggles with the, in, in encountering God change. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a dynamic relationship, the answers are not as easy and they're not as standard. When you have a static relationship, it's figured out, locked in, and this is just the way you go. And it's more difficult to have a dynamic, and I would say intimate relationship with yeah, God yeah. In, in that regard. Now, for those traditions that do not, you know, have that kind of, of background, you know, they've got a way that works for them. And even those traditions that are outside the, the stream of Christianity, their understanding of divinity, you know, kind of unfolds and works for them. But... In, in many of the traditions, it's something about a living relationship mm-hmm. rather than a static, dead yeah. relationship. Yeah. And um, that's a challenge in the 21st century. Again, I keep yeah. coming back to that because um, it, it puts so much um, investment in the relationship and not just 
the rules. And that's a different way for us to live as people of faith. We live in relationship and in principle rather than in rules. And for many folks uh, in, in the Western world, the rules just don't make sense and apply. Which is where part of what your story is saying is that these are the rules they were living under and we're trying to interpret those rules in a way that makes sense for us. And no matter what we do, there are rules that don't make sense for us. Mm -hmm. okay. All right, thank you guys for coming out and being part of this. We'll do chapters, I don't know, maybe the, the, the next couple are kind of, kind of uh, short, but we do get into uh, Lehi's dream, which I have a lot of fun with, the, the, the fruit of the tree of life, which for the first time, maybe like a week or two ago, I went, oh wait, the fruit of the tree of life is the joy of living life. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So foreshadowing, that's what's coming up um, in, uh, in future chapters. So again, thank you very much for coming out. This is Lindsay from Colorado, and when I'm not listening to Infants on Thrones, I am practicing the hymns and awaiting the day that brass players can perform in sacrament meeting. Well, okay, not really. But you can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com, and if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.